Petersfield's Shine Radio. This edition of Talking Books includes an interview with author Davy Fennell. And the book includes some graphic descriptions of fictional violence, which may be upsetting for some listeners, but there's only one illusion. This is Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm Susie Wilde and Talking Books has come of age. It's our 21st edition, Tim. Very exciting. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books. And our guest this month is David Fennell, author of a crime series that is not remotely cosy. So he says. So Susie, what are you currently reading? Well, actually, I was a bit shocked at how little I've read since we last recorded. And then I realised I've been doing my final edit of Landfall. Um, so I've really been working hard on that. So all my reading time, I've well, been that's actually... Great. That's great. <laughs> I know. It's good. It's good, isn't it? But so the one book that really, apart from my backlisted and Davy Fennels, who's our guest, um, is Frostquake by Juliet Nicholson. Now, the reason I wanted to read this is that on Boxing Day 1962, when she was eight, the snow began to fall. It did not stop for 10 weeks. And that's exactly the same age as me. And I remember that so vividly. We lost our boat, Freya. Dad converted a lifeboat. And it's very much, all that is within my own writing, actually, is about loss and so on, dated to that. But so she begins with the terrible smog in December, which I don't remember, but over 100 people died in four days. Um, But she takes the whole thing as a metaphor for a change between the old and the new. That A lot of people who are more grown up than me were saying, no, actually, it's rubbish. There was change going on all the time. But I really like Mm. the concept because especially at eight, you feel certainly at the time that you're leaving childhood. And I remember nine was a really important birthday for me. I really felt like I'd arrived at something. Mm. And the love of the Beatles and everything. It was it was major. Well, I suppose there's always, there is always um, a feeling of a change of an era, and every day probably. <laughs> and and um, but it is quite. Some things are quite good metaphors, aren't they? And I think that yeah. that um, when Britain emerged from that from that great frost and and frozenness, it was possibly into the excitement of the Beatles coming breaking out and, uh, and the world the world just beginning to, to, to wake up after the after the sort of austerity and and grimness of, of the post war years maybe. Yes. Yes. And how about you? What have you been up Well that was, I was about to say how about me? I was just before my time I'm afraid. No, I can't, I uh, I can't claim to be, I have been around and then uh, <laughs> Oh sweet. What uh, have you been reading is what I meant. Um well I've been reading a, a few books. I read Still Life by Sarah Winman. Um, it starts towards the end of, of the Second World War um, and is set mainly in Florence and partly also in a run-down pub in the East End of London. So it's it's not a love story, though it does have elements of romance. It's more a story about friendship, um, and resilience and art. I really enjoyed it and I didn't want it to end at all. Mm. So I thoroughly recommend that. The other, the other book, main book I can talk about is Clara and the Sun by Kazuo Ishiguro. Um, so this is not quite such an easy read. <laughs> it's set in some kind of future where human-like artificial intelligence um, beings are, are sold as companions to children. Clara is one of these, and she becomes the companion to a girl with a serious health condition. It's curiously gripping. 
actually, and it's engagingly written in, a, in that, his particular crystal clear prose style that draws you in while simultaneously being quite mystifying. Um, it's a funny contrast between between the sort of clarity of the writing style and the kind of and the kind of blurring of, of the edges that he does. I think um, he's back to his best with it. Well, I, I loved I, it. I do think it's definitely worth a read. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's it's just really different and interesting. It's always where the reader knows more. The clever way he writes, where the reader knows more than the the protagonist about well, what's I felt going I on. I didn't know last time what was going on at all, but uh, <laughs> but a, a, you gradually it does the, the the clouds sort of do part occasionally, and you get a, a picture of what's going on. I think, I think he's a really interesting writer. Mm. Um, the third book I was going to talk about is Think of Me by Francis Liardet. It starts again towards the end of, of the Second World War, but it's set mainly in the seventies. Uh, it's about a vicar who's been a widower for ten years and gets a job in a new parish. His wife was Egyptian, and we get her story, and there's lots of twists and mysteries to unravel along the way. Um, it, and it's really rather moving, actually, the story, and uh, I would definitely recommend that as Say well. Say again what that title is. It's called Think of Me. Think of Me. It's not a very catchy title. And also, if anybody at home hasn't quite caught anything, just remember we always have a complete list of all the books we mention on the website. So David was, was born and raised in Belfast before leaving for London at the age of 18 with, as he says, £50 in one pocket and a dog-eared copy of Stephen King's The Stand in the other. He worked as a chef, waiter, bartender for several years before starting a career in writing for the software industry. He says he's been working in cyber security for 15 years and is a fierce advocate for information privacy. So, Exo, are you still working for cybersecurity? I am, yes. Oh. How much longer, I don't know. Man and boy. Um, so, I think I said for regular listeners to this that Davy and I met on the MA course in creative writing for the University of Sussex. And that was lovely. And, of course, one of the things I chiefly remember is his chocolate Labrador called Harry. <laughs> but apart from that, what... Davy, I think you've always been able to do is to tell a rattling good yarn. So the first two books were Young Adult. They were. The Sleeper series. Yes, Sleeper and Sleeper the Red Storm. And uh, <clears throat> Sleeper was, it was effectively uh, like an eighth draft of my masters. You know, because remember, we all submitted books for our masters. And um, an early version of that was uh, something called the Thracian Firestone, I think, yes. which later became Sleeper. And uh, and yeah, I mean, story is very important to me and plot, and a plot that moves fast. That's something I work on quite hard. And it's interesting that that's a series. Will you return to that at all, do you think? Or Yes. Um, the Sleeper series has been bought by Canelo, and they are reissuing them. Oh, great. Later this year um, into one single volume. And I did have this vision of making them adult books. Um, I did a whole lot of edits and work on them to make them more adult. And, and But the Canelo decided, well, actually, they're still quite YA. And I'm really happy with that. The stories are, are, are solid. I was going to say, what is the difference between, would you say, the difference between a YA book and an adult book is? I mean, apart from the obvious, that one's aimed at a younger, younger audience, what's the, what are the key differences? So a young adult book is, um, is exactly that. It's aimed at a younger market, so it will have less adult content. 
and draw from that what you will. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Cause, yeah. Because I noticed that in in your um, in See No Evil, it's put some pretty pretty gruesome stuff going on in there, and obviously that wouldn't that wouldn't be in a in a way, but totally inappropriate. Yeah. 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 So, what did you find in the edit? So in the edits, um, <clears throat> well, I find a super, I, I just, for me, I don't know if you find this when you go back to older books, it, it's, I thought, oh my God, this is so badly written. <laughs> 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 Why did I write it like this? And um, although The Red Storm was different, uh, you know, it was, it was a bit happier with that. But um, I, I've kind of reworked them and, and reworked the prose and up the age a little bit and, and, and I've actually put in a little bit of older content So, but they will still be young adult they're going to be released in one single volume hardback later this year which is I think that's a really exciting. good move and yeah. will you still be J.D. Fennell for that I haven't decided that yet okay. um, I'm still wondering what to do there um, and it's, it's possibly I will because like you just observed, Cena Weevil, you know, I have an audience for these books. And sure. if I have an audience for, if I change my name to David Fennell and they see that there's, um, the young adult people see that there's these type of books, their parents might not be too happy once they start mm. reading them. <laughs> I think that's a fair point. So moving on, because obviously you've just launched your second book in that series as David Fennell, See No Evil. Um, I've reread, because you were coming, um, The Art of Death. And it's really interesting how the second time you read something, and I think often we don't go back to crime, but the second time you read it, you you see sort of other things. So first time, um, if people haven't read it, um, you've got a really strong female lead, if you like, um, in Grace Archer. Great name, I think, and a a great woman. um, With very much the partnership with Harry Quinn. And so that sprang out at me first time. But this time I was reading it and I see it um, because what worried me first time was I'm a bit sort of sensitive about violence against women. Um, There's just so much of it, uh, you know, in real life and television. And of course it isn't really. It's more akin to Damien Hirst. It's more in a way about art and it really struck me this time it was almost like the unappreciated artist very much like the unappreciated writer um so he doesn't see himself as a serial killer he sees himself as a great artist so what was your inspiration for let's deal with art of death first well that's a a very interesting point and you're absolutely right um uh, one thing i will clarify on that is that I, I totally agree with you. Violence against women. Um, I I'm really uncomfortable writing that, and in fact, I don't really write any violence against women. Nearly all of my murders are off the page in the art of death, except for a couple. Um, and they're as diverse as the characters. Yes, and that's very important to me, and it will continue to be important to me. I don't want to be one of these crime writers who's murdering women all the time. I just think it's. As it were, it's yeah, it's, it's been done, but it's just inappropriate. And the but the and the inspiration for the art of death, you know, I I, I wanted a, a killer who um, initially um, catfishes his victim, so he uses technology like dating apps. Can you explain catfish if anyone so, doesn't know? Yes, so catfishing is when you go onto an online website or an app and you pretend to be someone else, someone you're not, and you well talk to this person behind a different set of photographs and a different um, bio than you than is your actual self 
and maybe groom them, um, you know, and um, you tell them the sweet things that they want to hear, and um, you know, and, and, and form a, a bond, a relationship with them. So my killer does this with the intention of ensnaring them, you know, and that that was the modus operandi in the beginning for the art of death. Um, but then I thought, well, what what is he going to do with the bodies? And you know, I, I was kind of taken with the idea that. Um, um, you know, like Damien Hurst, as you mentioned, and Banksy, you know, Banksy, who is an, an um, underground anonymous, effectively, like the name of the killer. And, and oh, the, the killer's death. ingenious name. So oh, it's, yeah. I, I don't know how you set I mean, Obviously, it's anonymous, but it's an, with an at. At symbol. What he does, he, he sets up these kind of grisly art exhibitions um, in uh, tanks, glass tanks filled with formaldehyde. And, uh, yeah. But even the name, I had to, I had to look it up actually. Um, the name of the Damien Hurst. I obviously thought of the shark thing, mm-hmm. and it's um, the physical impossibility of death in the mind of someone living, and that even seemed to me quite a good metaphor for a lot of what was going on in that book in your prose. I, I, I did look at all his the names that he put to his um, artworks, and and I've kind of fashioned my own. Um, you know, so the three men, and there's the father, the son, and the ghost, which oh, is a yes. kind of a, a religious um, connotation there between these three victims. Then there's one who is sort of a tribute to Ophelia. Um, what's the painting? The melee. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So she's kind of floating in a in a, in a glass tomb. Like and Ophelia. he makes he makes them actually beautiful. Yes. Does, I mean, it's hideous, in, yeah. you know, normal, but they are. He doesn't kind of abuse the bodies. He does yeah. transform them yes. into something wonderful. And actually, you know, so I, I'm going through all this in case anyone else at home is thinking, oh, no, I, not for me. Um, in many ways, it's actually, rather than being horrible to and about women, it's quite cautionary. And my um, godson and his partner came to see us at the weekend. And, I, you know, I actually advised her to read it because young women in particular are so incautious about their media presence. So I, I, I'm actually quite grateful. Yeah, and, and, and I'm so glad you said that. Um, and, and I think, you know, me working in data security, I totally understand um, how easy it is for us all to just get caught up, um, especially those of us who are more vulnerable. Um, and that's what these victims are. They're kind of vulnerable, they're lonely. And, you know, they're kind of left adrift in the world. And all of a sudden, these people, this man comes and, you know, makes promises, you know, sweet talks them and then inevitably makes them into art. But one of the things that really got me, because I thought, oh, you know, yes, I'm out there a bit, but not very much. But it's that thing that, you know, it, it says within the book you get tagged in other people's photographs and so on so that's right one point where you know because he's captured the son of one of his victims and who he doesn't know what to do with and he has him sort of tied up in a basement and you know the the boy asks where is my mum and you know he tells him well look your mother is going to be like the Mona Lisa she's going to be preserved and the image of her is going to be preserved on the internet, which of course it will be. That those you know, we're still seeing photographs of dead people 
from decades and centuries. I mean, the well, last no, century, it is. It is digitised yeah. now. So, so. digitised, and so and it gets propagated across servers. And so, this, so what he has, and this is his, um, you know, part of his ultimate game, is to have a online exhibition of you know of his work. So it's always going to be there after he dies. Yeah, and so moving on to see no evil, I was thinking there of um, Pan's Labyrinth with the eyes in the hands Um, but instead of looking out so in Pan's Labyrinth if anyone hasn't seen the film I just keep seeing this image um, of the the hands sort of pressing the viewer away but actually cleverly I'm only about halfway through so it might alter but at the moment the eyes have literally been put on the palms of someone to look back at them so it's more reflective at, at the victim looking at himself in That's that right. case. That's right. So what was your inspiration for See No Evil? Or was there one or several? Um, There's probably a couple. I mean, I think one of the, the feelings that I wanted to capture in this book was um, from Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, you know, based on the Daphne du Maurier, loosely based on the Daphne du Maurier short story. And there's a scene in that where um, Mitch Brenner's mother goes to visit her friend Dan at his cottage mid- midway through the movie and she enters his cottage, he doesn't answer, she enters he his cottage and she notices that there's um, debris everywhere, broken glass crockery, everything and she calls his name he doesn't answer, She the camera follows her through the house as she looks for Dan and she walks into his bedroom and she sees on the floor his it's pajamaed legs and there's streaks of blood everywhere there's birds lying um, dead all over the place and, and, and Dan when we see Dan you know we see his eyes have been pecked out and when I first saw that at the age of 11 it absolutely yeah. traumatised me and of course Alfred Hitchcock does this two, does two dizzying close-ups of his face that really makes it even more horrific and then of course, um, Mitch Brenner's mother runs. So she can't. She can't even scream. She's just so horrified. She runs from that. Uh, that really traumatised me. And and I wanted to sort of recapture that image in a way without being too gory. I don't really. I, I should say to readers, like, don't. This is not a horror novel, and don't worry too much. I, I've kind of held back on the gore. of something. That's that's what I think anyway. But some people might disagree. There's a lot of heart and humour in these books too, and and I and I think and I hope there's enough there to readdress the balance and not make it too horrible for people. I I think absolutely heart and humour really wins through, and you can always blink for those. But there's something about um, a book I can cope with more than on the television yeah. because on the television it's there, it's done. Oh no, I've seen it. But a book, you kind of know where this is going, and you can literally not just if, not if you're hiding behind a sofa, you can't see it. <laughs> yeah. You have to know it's going to come. Well, you normally did. did, did well, did, I was did. thinking it leads of that. you to leads you to it, doesn't it? You know, you know it's about to happen normally. Talking about film, though, I was thinking of that one. Um, I can't remember who did it, but it's the really old black and white film. And I think it's Un Chien d'Andalou, and it's the one where all of a sudden this film's going on and you think 
oh no I know what's coming and it's too late it's already come uh, and it's the thing where um, a razor slices an eyeball and there's something about eyes a really old black and white Um, and it just is utterly horrific so um, but you, you kind of know that that's where that's going and that even in here so again as I say um, I'm only halfway through but it's obvious to me um, you know what's going on and one of the things that I think you're so good at is creating um, characters that we care about in very quick order so even well they're not minor because they end up as victims but even characters that we don't meet for very long you end up really caring that they've been killed and I think that's actually really important well and I I'm really glad you said that you know I I, I was at a talk once at a crime festival and I was listening to Don Winslow and Ian McKellen and not Ian McKellen sorry Ian Rankin. Rankin. Oh, there. There's a bit of mind reading. Yeah. And, um, and, and it was about the human cost of crime. And, and it was just fascinating to me. And this is while I was writing The Art of Death. And it really struck a chord. All very well writing about the crimes. But really, if you want to hit home with people and, and, and make an impact in your work, you've got to really... Um, the reader's got to feel it from the victim's point of view and you've got to connect with the victim and I think well, that's where a lot of um, crime writing just goes wrong sometimes yeah. well, it's really almost a pornography you... of violence that you absolutely <clears throat> don't do that because it's not just the victim but you show the effect on the yeah. family yes, that's important to me um, and I do that in Sina Weevil and, and I, I will do that in all my books I hope, and I hope I do it just do them justice as well the victims as just reading some of what you've written it seems to be very um would make a good tv series have you have you, have, oh, you yes. have you had any any interest or 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 do you not do you, do you not want it to go on tv or oh well i would i would love it to <laughs> right um, okay and it's the i not for this one yet um because it's just come out um it's seen or, or the order of death has been looked at by a few people but it's not right. been picked up it's uh yet so yeah you know who, who knows but you know we're, we're always in there well, it's take, it takes take Sunrise a long long way down their career before they get on to I mean, think that the, the Brighton writer, um, Peter, yes, James, Peter James, who's only just, just started on telling, he's been going for, you know, 20 years or something. So, so yeah, so plenty of time yet. <laughs> well, I was wondering, because of now, one of my questions is, why is the setting London not Brighton? And is that because of Roy Grace, or is that just because London... I was thinking of um, Barbara Vine... Mm-hmm. Um, and her books it, that, that there's a there's a darkness there and a, and a psychopathy that I think that you really bring out. Is Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, Brighton, I I did consider Brighton, but I think um, it's been done by a couple of people, and, and obviously Peter James, and I didn't want to to go down that route again. I, to me, there London holds more. The scope is bigger, um, and with the, the architecture, because I I talk a lot. I, I use the architecture of London, um, even the sort of the, the, the grand Georgian beautiful stuff and the, and the decaying stuff as well, I, I use that a lot in my books. Having those places that are familiar to people, that familiarity um, and that decay is something that to me was much more interesting to write about than Brighton. 
What really interests me, the, the sort of link for me between your first The Sleeper series and this, is that with Sleeper, that's also London, but it's a London that's kind of London, but parallel, almost like Oxford in Philip Pullman's books. It's kind of that. It's also historical and yet not quite speculative. I speculative. Think they call it. yeah. Let's call it's it that. They call it the industry. But it's even yeah. with your crime. It's so recognisable. I know a lot of those places in London. We all would who yeah. have anything to do with it. And yet, you show something else that's completely other of it. It still feels like a, a parallel London to me. Oh, that's, I'm really, really glad you said that, actually. It's, uh, because that's absolutely my attention. I, I, I wanted to, to my books to be on the, on the borderline of parallel. They are death, see no evil. They call them police procedurals, but I, I'm i very light on the police procedurals, and my, my colours are quite dark, and the themes are quite dark. It's not a real story. <laughs> you just wouldn't have someone who's erecting these seven-foot-tall... Cubes of formaldehyde. And, and, and it's a kind of scary story um, in, in a gritty police thriller that I hope people... Appreciate, them. but I think very much because it's slightly other, it also makes it bearable. So it's not only that the victims are not here, women. Here we go again, you know. And actually, some of your characters I feel are almost like the way you describe them, like Alan Bennett described some of his. I'm going to later on. There's a this small snippet of the beginning of chapter six I want to read because it's a real example of how you just in like three sentences we know this marriage. I don't know how you know heterosexual marriages so well, but this could be me and Richard. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm interested to reread that. Actually. <laughs> Just thinking about the the detective um, notion and, and the Brighton connection. Of course, I hadn't spotted the Grace the Grace connection. Whether that's deliberate or not, there. Not at Grace all. Archer no, I, I, Grace Archer. No, no. Um, <laughs> it's in fact the choosing the name. I mean, I've never read Peter James's books. Um, and choosing the name, I think, was just a, a coincidence there. Sure. Do you ever get challenged for writing women? I mean, is it because because of Grace Archer, or does anyone... You know, I'm not going to, because I know you, but if, if anyone doesn't know you, do they? Um, no, I don't, but one very famous crime author said to me when I was writing The Art of Death, she, she said... She asked me what I was writing, I said, I'm writing this... Um, thriller um but i'm a female detective and she said oh, oh what makes you think you can write from the perspective of a woman and it really threw me that question and um i didn't really know what to say to it at the time it's just you know it was it, and she said oh well, i suppose you won't be writing you know that, that sort of you know that cliched male um, part of women, you know, assuming that because I'm gay, I'm not going to be writing something that is just totally inappropriate. Uh, and still now, there's a there, there's a lot of me- although I I have never read any. There's a lot of male um, uh, writers that are people tweet about who will write about a um, woman, you know, admiring herself. Oh yeah, yeah in the yeah. mirror. Yeah. You know, you know, and uh, without being too, as we all do, yeah, and, and you know, and maybe, you know, 
touching themselves and all that sort of thing. And, like, and that just never happens. Come on. And it still kind of bothers me that I was asked that question because I think, you know, and, and especially that writer, you, you know, who's, you know, who I respect and, and all writers, you know, we should be able to write what we want to write. You know, cultural appropriation is a different um, topic altogether. But, you know, there's every emotion that Grace Archer has been through has been an experience as something that I've experienced. So I'm I'm not writing from the female perspective. I'm writing, you know, in genre as a character who goes through all sorts of emotions. You know, she's got her father who's got dementia. How she deals with that is the same as I've dealt with it with my father. She's her grandfather has her grandfather experienced bigotry. I have as well. She's experienced all sorts of issues, you know. And these are not, you know, problems. Um, all of us, whoever we are, experience some sort of issues. And I, you know, and I put them into my character. And uh, um, yeah. But you know, for authors, we're all our characters in a way, aren't we? They're they're they're, they're mm-hmm. part of ourselves that we have to put on the page. So, you know. That's right, David. Who's my agent and, and other half? He he reckons Harry Quinn is me. He says, Harry, you've just written yourself into this book. The dry humour is. <laughs> yeah, I think you know if I when I'm writing Harry Quinn, I well, what would I say in this situation? I hear you. <laughs> I hear you? your voice. I do. Yeah. So yeah, he's lovely. I have to say, he is oh. a lovely character. Thank you. Thank you. No, I'll take it as a compliment. Obviously. Take it as a compliment. <laughs> so, why do you think there is this this real fascination with the crime novel or or murder story? I think we're all fascinated by crime and murder. And we, you know, and we people always have been, and you know, this goes back to true crime, you know, in crime novels that've been you know selling so well. I don't know what you think, Susie, but certainly we, or you guys think, as, as crime readers. But I think, you know, when you read a crime book, like you mentioned earlier, it's a cautionary tale. The Art of Death is a cautionary tale. And it puts, you're, it puts you into the mind of someone who is probably going through a very rough patch. And it, and it provides an empathy that you will not get from TV or movies. It helps us understand. If we get closure on a crime at the end of a book, then it makes us feel better about the world, I think. Mm. Yeah, when there isn't closure elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But you're right, I was thinking of public executions. Yeah. And, and people still go to look at gallows places in London, don't they, where yeah. they used to be hanged. Okay. David, it was so lovely. Thank you so much for travelling to the Petersphere to come and do this podcast with us. It's been great. You're very welcome and great to meet you all and thank you for the opportunity. So what have we got to look out for in the coming month, Tim? Well, I've got a, a few books, as usual, that I, that I wanted to mention. There's House Arrest by Alan Bennett. This is a, it's a short little book. Um, it's effectively his lockdown diary. And it's, but it's characteristically, characteristically witty, dry and acerbic, uh, and very Alan Bennett-y general. And, and it wouldn't be a talking book without mentioning Alan Bennett at least three times during, <laughs> during the hour. Um, the second book I wanted to talk about is... Geography is Destiny by Ian Morris. Um, this is how geography, migration, government and new technology have interacted over the last 10,000 or so years 
to make our country what it is today. So going right back to when we literally, uh, the Dogger land and when we were actually connected to the rest of Europe um, 10,000 years or so ago, before the, before the last Ice Age uh, ended. It's one of those big history books that try and explain stuff by taking a really big perspective and bringing in everything, architecture, archaeology, you know, everything in, into, into a mix. Um, which I think is rather rather entertaining, actually, in a, in a big history book. Um, so, is it like Prisoners of Geography? I think it's that. It's, it's that within that thing, genre, that actually. Um, right, okay. But uh, I'm looking forward to, to, to reading that. Um, a book that's just come out in paperback, which is the second in Richard Osman's crime series, "The Man Who Died Twice." Um, I know some people who don't enjoy this, but but not many. It's full of his usual dry humour and his clever plotting. And I actually think this one is better than the first one. Um, the other book which is coming out in paperback uh, is The Court of Silver Flames by Sarah J Maas. This is the latest in the Court of Thorns and Roses series. Um, and it's not to be confused with her other ongoing series, the Crescent City series and Throne of Glass series, which is, which is aimed at a younger audience, the Throne of Glass one. Um, this is very much an adult fantasy uh, which my daughter tells me is brilliant, but I'm slightly daunted by their length, and I um, one of these days I might might read it. <laughs> Excellent. So now my backlisted book. Um, I don't know if you've read it, Tim. It's surely you're joking, Mister Feynman. Adventures of a Curious Character. Now I know the book. Um, it's it's a bit of a classic, but I've never actually read it. No, nor me. And it was published in 1992, but it came up recently because um, a friend of mine, an artist who was asked by her granddaughter to teach her how to draw for doing a sort of fashion degree at St Martin's. And Linda said to her, no, actually, um, you just need to draw. You, you Not a particular style. Or just think about life differently. And so she actually bought the book for her. So I was mildly curious. And um, both Richard and I have now read it. It's So it's... I see why it's been a bestseller for years. And this one is actually a series of conversations with his friend, Feynman's friend, Ralph Layton, um, over many years. So it's really lively. It's just a series of anecdotes about this absolute genius um, Feynman, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1965 for his work in quantum electrodynamics, whatever that is. Um described by someone who knew him as he was a man of absolute integrity his understanding of physics was unequalled he was an inspired teacher and he once lived a love story that surpasses our understanding Um, and I found the love letter to his wife who'd been dead for four years by then one of the most profoundly moving things I've read Um, but this guy is he must be a genius because he understands everything and like Stephen Hawking said the minute you put one equation in a book you lose half your readers so he doesn't he's um not just a scientist he becomes proficient at picking safes at the Manhattan Project playing the bongos in Brazil he's just wonderful and so I've just got two things um the first that he says is absolute quotation from him is the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool I think I absolutely agree with that and I want to end 
really with um, something to give us all hope because I think the world's in a pretty dark place at the moment. But there's this one. It doesn't seem to me that this fantastically marvellous universe, this tremendous range of time and space and different kinds of animals and all the different planets and all these atoms with all their motions and so on, all this complicated thing can merely be a stage so that God can watch human beings struggle for good and evil, which is the view that religion has. The stage is too big for the drama. I really... I love that because it's even got a Shakespearean ring to it, I think. But I, I quite like that notion. Fantastic. Anyway, I, I commend it to you and anybody else. I, I'm not going to read from the book because I think its chatty style is, is just bed, breast read to yourself, really. Wonderful. Thanks, Susie. So our guest in June will be Wendy Smith chatting about her book club. So I was interested. Um, it's called Reading Between the Wines, which I think is inspired. Um, she's also fundraising manager for the Rosemary Foundation Hospice at Home, so I think that'll be interesting. That'll be fascinating. Um, don't forget to tell us, uh, let us know what you're reading in local book groups, and we'll mention it on the programme. Find us in all the usual podcast places. Uh, we love hearing your comments and recommendations. And you might have a short interview with someone, mightn't you, Tim? Well, I hope to get, get to chat to Ben Pope, a local, local gardener, uh, head gardener around here, who has written a, a really wonderful book. Oh, so I'll more about that next time. Excellent. Really look forward to it. You have been listening to Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly, and produced by John Wellsman. in Petersfield and look at us sitting around drinking bovril and waiting for some cool cat to invent Shine Radio. It's so boring without that. Quite, but hold it in, missus, because when they do, it'll be thoroughly modern and made of formica, probably. This summer, Shine Radio turns back the clock to the 1950s. We'll be sharing stories from the Petersfield archives and your own memories, reliving the music of the time, and we'll be live at Petersfield's Platinum Jubilee Fair in June. Do get in touch if you have a recollection of Petersfield in the 50s and stand by for a summer of Petersfield memories only on Petersfield's Shine Radio. Too right. We'll be having a blast. Quite so. It's the word from the bird, Daddy-o. Oh, shush.